You're listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. A lot of times I hear that sports are the best reality show you could possibly imagine. And this weekend proved that sometimes the sports god looked down and say, you know what we want? We want a Disney movie ending because that's what it feels like we're getting with a final four matchup that includes Duke taking on North Carolina. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM, Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, and we'll get straight to the Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. It comes in the form of North Carolina just smacking St. Peter's around. And there, if any hope that was left at that point that we might get St. Peter's advancing all the way to a dream national championship, you might have felt disappointed. And then all of a sudden, you realize, Sarah, you can't be disappointed because now we get two North Carolina, one of the greatest rivalries in all of sports for a Final Four matchup. Yeah, I just want to remind you that you need to be a little more sensitive when you say smacking anyone up after what we saw at the Oscars last night. Oh, that's I think you a, need that, to be, uh, either you're making a pun about it intentionally or we just need to leave it off the table lest we get into think pieces. By the way, uh, that reminds me, our buddy Chris Connolly is going to join us later with all the behind the scenes. He did was you, did at you the like Oscars. Were you, were you I actually, so here's the thing. I love the Oscars. I have always loved the Oscars. I loved them when I was a kid, and Billy Crystal was, like, throwing to packages about movies that I never saw. Like, very serious adult movies that I had never seen. I still love the spectacle and the old Hollywood of it and the performances. I like this version. I, I, I didn't need it to be quite so rushed uh, on some of the on some of the uh, elements, but I thought they did a nice job balancing some of the stuff we're used to seeing and then trying to get a little bit younger. Um, I like when Megan Thee Stallion dropped into a Disney song. I was hoping my... You know, maybe she'd throw in some WAP and then I would be able to negotiate into fewer uh, warnings from our bosses when I work blue. I thought, you know, mm. if Megan the Stallion did that, uh, we'd probably have the same HR, right? Um, I really liked that the incredible documentary film about the first woman ever drafted in the NBA, the first woman to score a basket in women's basketball in the Olympics. Uh, that documentary, which was produced by Steph and Shaq, amongst many others, uh, won. And the guy giving the speech... Um, said, you know, if there is ever any question about whether there's interest in female athletes, let this Academy Award be the answer, um, which was spectacular. So there was a lot of moments that I really liked. I thought Amy Schumer and Wanda Sykes and Regina Hall did a great job hosting. Um, and there were some really incredibly moving moments, none of which we're going to talk about or remember uh, because uh, someone got slapped right on yeah, stage. Well- I will say to these, you know, to you and the Oscars, I, they're now synonymous for me. We've worked together long enough that when I saw the, like, I, I'm so clueless on, like, I'm a movie buff and I love going <laughs> to the movies. But to no shock for anybody, I see the most vapid, terrible movies of you all time. You and I like, probably have, like, uh, if we did a Venn diagram, we would overlap on, like, one movie. And it would be, yeah. I go to all the Marvel movies with black people and women because yeah. I want to support them and I don't care about the other ones. And that's where we would overlap. I, I haven't seen the Marvel movies. There it goes. We're done. We got what? no overlap. Yeah, I, like yeah, what I saw a Iron Man. Disney employee. I, saw, I know, you know, but there's too many of them. I feel like I'm too far behind. But the the point is here. I was watching the Oscars and I thought, man, this is Sarah's night. And in my mind, <laughs> you were like, and this is just totally in my mind. In my mind, you were sitting with a group of people in like total Oscar regalia, having like bubbly champagne and enjoying the finer things because that's how I, I imagine because okay. I stayed up till four a.m. in New. York the night before um, 
uh, after I hosted around the horn all week. So I went out with my friends, flew immediately home. I had to go straight to dinner with my family because my aunt was in town. So yesterday, and then I had to walk 10 miles yesterday morning uh, for my Grand Canyon training. So I was just on the couch by myself, but I was texting and tweeting up a storm. I was yelling upstairs, Brad, Brad, come down. Something crazy just happened at the Oscars. He's like, I don't care. I'm like, no, not like that kind of crazy. Like you will find this interesting, even you. <laughs> oh, that is that is amazing. Uh, Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Uh, we'll get into some more Oscars later yeah. on we'll get to all the controversial stuff trust me mm-hmm. but in the meantime uh, there is a final four matchup that i don't know if you've heard this yet sarah but uh, barf we get duke north carolina like I, 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 <laughs> i'm the troll I, i'm just gonna play the bad guy on this one because like fi- duke north carolina is a really intriguing final four game but to me this i'm gonna make a food comparison because always the inner fat kid like in and out is a fine hamburger until you turn it into this is the single greatest hamburger of all time and then like you have to be checked and put in your place and realize that it's not that much better or better at all than Wendy's. Like, Wendy's equally as good as in and out Like, that's where I am with this. Like, this is a good Final Four matchup. It's going to be fine, but we're going to spend all week turning it into some great, epic, oh-my-God thing. Okay, that's because it is. Uh, listen, I got no rooting interest in Duke, but I don't hate them like everybody else. I sometimes root for UNC because of Michael Jordan, but not a ton. But the, the, the facts bear it out. Like, this is inarguably... One of the greatest college basketball games of all time due to the lead up between these two teams who are some of the best rivals in all of sports. I think Jay Williams did a great job this morning on KJ and Max summing up like some of the statistics behind this rivalry. Biggest rivalry in sports. Even if you want to compare Yankees, Red Sox, give me other rock. It, it can compete. Coach K's last hurrah. Two teams that have never met. Think about the series. Duke wins 50 games. Carolina's won 49. Points scored in the overall series. Duke, 7,784. Carolina, 7,763. So think about that (laughs) that gap. It's so close. And the fact that North Carolina ruined Coach K's senior night, his last season ever coaching, his last game ever at Cameron Indoor Stadium, North Carolina came in, and that was an event, and they won. They celebrated on the court. There was that coaching mishap with Chris Carrowell not shaking Hubert Davis's hand. You have Nolan Smith who kind of gave him the look away. The rivalry is there, and there is nobody as a Duke fan that I want to see more in the Final Four than North Carolina. Fitz, it's the stats he mentioned. They've met 257 times, and they've never met in the tournament. This is their 100th meeting since Coach K was hired by Duke, and again, 49-50 to with Duke one game up. This is the two teams who have been in the same field in the NCAA tournament the most times of any without ever meeting. They're eight miles apart. They have 248 tournament wins between the two of them, but they've never met. It's incredible. And then you add in all the storylines that Jay just mentioned where Duke, you know, these players uh, really let down Coach K in that finale at Cameron Indoor. They have a chance to avenge that. In fact, if they make a dock or 30 for 30 or something, if Duke wins it all this year, the montage is very clearly going to look back at the speech that Coach K gave after they got whooped by UNC in that final game. This is a little bit of it. I'm sure you remember. This isn't part of the program. This is impromptu by me. I'm sorry about this afternoon. That, no, please, no, please, everyone be quiet. Let me just say, it's unacceptable. Today was unacceptable, but the season has been very acceptable. And, uh, and I'll tell you, the season isn't over, all right? 
Ooh, that's gold, Fitz. Gold. Uh, yeah, sure. It's it, it's it's gold. It's fine. It's just how many times can we blow this match up? Up like this is one of those things where we we already saw Duke North Carolina. Like we've seen it a couple of times. Like I, you know, it, like it's, a true it's, fiddle player. I mean, it, it, there is just this moment where I'm like, how many how many college? So on Saturday, I'll be hosting with Christine Williamson a countdown show on digital to set the stage for the Final Four. We do this every time, right? Well, this will be the third time this season that we've spent the whole time talking about Duke North Carolina. Oh, so I get it. It just doesn't, it doesn't feel special. Say. I it understand. No, so let me I mean, ask you this. How many times uh, would you like to see the Chiefs and Raiders before you never want to see it again? I never want to see Patrick Mahomes again. But okay, yeah, because you're going to okay. lose and you know that. I mean, yeah, because fair. of the enthusiasm rivalry. That's the best part. All of the lead up to this is the best part. Okay, you're being a hater, but mm-hmm. I know you're not alone in this. And it actually reminds me a lot of when people are like sick of hearing about Brady or Tebow or Yankees Red Sox. So I'm going to put this out there at Spain and Fitz, at Sarah Spain, at Jason Fitz. What's the like most hyped up player team matchup rivalry that you have zero interest in that you could not be more sick of hearing about? Because I think we're going to get a whole lot of answers to that. Yeah, we are We are going to get a ton to that. We'll keep breaking it down because, frankly, that's some straight talk, straight talk, wireless, no contract, no compromise. Why will we break it down? It's our jobs. That's what we do. In the meantime, we do have women's college basketball starting up right now on ESPN. It has been a wild tournament. Number two, UConn taking on number one, NC State. Who will be the final two teams to reach the final four? We'll get with an expert to get some opinions and thoughts on all of it next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, hanging out with you on a Monday here on ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. While we are talking to you, UConn and NC State are just getting underway in Bridgeport. Sort of a home game yet again for UConn as they try to bounce the number one. Quite a gift for that uh, number one seed to have to play UConn in their backyard here. Mm. We're going to get Louisville, Michigan later in the night that two uh, final games to decide who will be in the Elite Eight. We're going to get some insight from someone who's done a great job of covering the tourney, ESPN and ACC Network host Kelsey Riggs. Kelsey, thanks for the time. Guys, thanks for having me. Uh, You just touched on a few things there, Sarah, about this uh, (laughs) home court that NC State is the one seed is is playing on basically UConn's home court right now. And second of all, I'm watching this game and I don't know how parents do it because I know like as ESPN people were supposed to be biased, but as an ACC network person, I'm obviously not. Um, and so I feel like a proud, nervous parent right now for the next however many hours for these two games. I, I, I am unwell. <laughs> Let's talk about this UConn game, and, and thank you so much for coming on while the game is, is going on here. Listen, I understand that there is a good reason for the women's tournament to have these games set in places that are likely to draw big fans. Um, And UConn fans do travel, so they could have it, as Monica McNutt pointed out and around the horn today, somewhere like Philly, somewhere in the East Coast that's not quite so much in the backyard, and they certainly could have had the lowest number one seed in that region instead of NC State. How big of a, a deal is it, do you think, and will it be in this game that it's essentially a home game for UConn? Well, Wes Moore, NC State's head coach, has tried to do the best that he can with saying, look, you know, the outside factors, the noise, the environment, you know, you've got to shut it out. They, this is a team that last year, uh, NC State, went on the road and knocked down two number one teams. And so, obviously, it's a new year, a new team, but they have a lot of those players back. This is 
um, an NC State team with a ton of seniors and upperclassmen that remember what it's like to go and win in tough environments. But it definitely matters. I mean, that was the first thing that, you know, we noticed when we got the brackets was you start looking ahead and saying, oh, if this happens and NC State doesn't get upset and UConn doesn't get upset, then they're playing in Bridgeport. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, with, with them not being the lowest number one seed, you would think at least that's the team that's, that's slotted there. So, um, you know, the, the fans are definitely a factor. But I think what's going to help NC State is the fact that they have so many good veteran leaders on that team right and they finally got over the hump last week this team of not being able to advance out of the sweet 16 they've made it to the elite eight they know what's on the line for that Um, I think that that's something as we talk about the changes that have been made since last year and as they try to make things um, more equal between the men and the women I think that that is something that they're definitely going to look at in the future we've talked a lot on all ACC with you know, Hall of Famer Muffet McGraw about some of the, the challenges that do still lie ahead. And, you know, you think even the first two rounds, um, getting to host those on home courts, I think eventually they'll start picking different sites and, and just try to make it a little more even all around because it could happen, I guess, to anybody. But the fact that it, it happened to NC State as they're taking on UConn is definitely going to be a tough but fun environment. It, it, it looks like it is so far anyways. You're listening to Spain and Fitz there, Spain, Jason Fitz. We're talking to Kelsey Riggs. Kelsey brought to you by Wendy's Breakfast, the official breakfast of March Madness. Uh, Kelsey, there have been a couple of times in this tournament where UConn's looked a little sluggish. Things haven't looked as easy for them, but the margin of victory has been, uh, been pretty substantial in two out of the three games. How good is Connecticut in your mind at this point? This is the best that I think that they've been all year, and obviously it's the healthiest they've been, and that's a huge part of it. Um, you know, they only have two players that have played in every single game this year. And it's not just Paige Beckers. That's the name that we all know and love. And she's phenomenal. And, you know, to win National Player of the Year last year as a freshman, there's a reason and there's a big deal for it. Um, But to get her back healthy and AZ FUD, they just have so many dangerous pieces right now. And, um, you know, when you're limited at practice and we don't have all those factors together throughout the regular season consistently, when it's one person after another after another, I think it's hard to kind of get that team chemistry. Um, Gino Ariema is a phenomenal coach, but obviously when the factors around who you have on any given day, practice and games are changing, um, that's tough. So I, I think this is an incredibly dangerous team in UConn. And, you know, they have a lot of a lot of women that can step up on really if, any given night. But the fact that we've seen them play so consistently good throughout this NCAA tournament and Paige Beckers does have her feet under her more after coming off of that knee surgery and, and has started the last four or five games now after being limited to, I think, only 12 minutes before that um, as she was you know, kind of coming back from that surgery, uh, they just look like the real deal all around, and and they're going to give NC State a really tough challenge as as a really tough two-seed in UConn. Yeah, no kidding. At Kelsey Briggs is where you can follow her on Twitter. She joins us here on Spain and Fitz. I want to get to the other game tonight, but quickly, what was your big takeaway from yesterday's matchups? You saw Creighton get blown out by South Carolina. Their sort of Cinderella run ended, and then Stanford and Texas going down to the wire. Stanford gets the win 59-50 there. Uh, what was your biggest takeaway? I think two. I know you only asked me for one, but South Carolina 
is so good. We had a lot of questions the first couple of weeks, the first couple of games, rather, about their offense. I mean, yeah. they came out, and, and it just it, it had not looked like the South Carolina team we'd seen all year, and it didn't look like a team that could make a Final Four run. They were playing great defensively, um, but really needed to pick it up on offense, and um, they were able to do that. So South Carolina, to me, um, looked like a more complete team that is ready to potentially win a national championship. And then on the other side of things, with that Stanford-Texas game, I think my big picture takeaway from this tournament, Sarah and Fitz, is like how fun it has been. There have been so many good games in the women's tournament. There have been so many upsets through the first two rounds. We had eight double-digit seeds headed into the, the second day that had already upset um, you know, the higher seeds. And so my biggest takeaway is just like, how good the competition is this year. We said throughout the season, hey, it feels like, you know, there's maybe eight teams, there's maybe 10 teams that that could go on and and win a championship. But it's been really fun to see some of those double-digit seeds. It gets confusing when you start saying lower, higher. We've been doing this like the last three weeks with the seeds. Uh, But some of those double-digit seeds really come out and and show up on the big stage. So um, it's been a phenomenal tournament. I can't wait to see who ends up in the Final Four because already with with two number ones, it's going to be um, a really exciting finish for sure. Kelsey, in, in 30 seconds, give me your thoughts on Michigan, Louisville. Michigan obviously can shoot and can create contact, get to the line. How do they beat Louisville? Well, they got to take care of the basketball. That's the big thing for me. Louisville is really, really good at, at forcing turnovers and playing good defense. They have Emily Ankler, who came over from Syracuse and has just been the, maybe one of the, the most impactful transfers I think in all of women's basketball and they're really good at creating turnovers causing problems and finding ways to turn that defense into buckets on the other end so if Michigan wants to pull off the upset they've got to take care of the basketball and it wouldn't hurt to see well it would hurt my heart personally but it wouldn't hurt for Nas Hillman to go off and and have a, a big offensive night like we know she's capable of doing I'm hoping for the opposite uh fits which you guys know but we'll see I think that that's going to be a great matchup too yeah, I see. I feel the same way about Nas Hillman. I'm worried. I just think that defense has been so good at shutting people down, and we saw that happen when they met a couple months ago. I just don't think Michigan's gonna have gonna have enough. But awesome insight, Kelsey. Thanks so much. Uh, enjoy the games tonight. We'll talk to you later in the tournament. Appreciate you, you guys. Thanks so much. Y'all have a good one. Kelsey Riggs, ESPN and ACC Network host with us here on Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz and ESPN Radio presented by Progressive Insurance. UConn up 15-11 early in this game with NC State almost the end of the first quarter here. We'll keep you updated on that and then later the second game of the evening. But coming up, our next guest is going to break down the men's final four. Is this destiny for Duke, Fitz? Duke, Duke, mm, UNC, gross. Duke and UNC. Duke is playing UNC. Did you hear that UNC is playing Duke? Uh, is this destiny for Duke and Coach K? We're going to talk to him about that and the other games coming up on Spain and Fitz, ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It was a fun weekend of college basketball that now has given us a matchup that, you know, one host on this show... <laughs> says is maybe going to be overhyped. I won't say which one. It's me. All right, Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM channel, Lady Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. We're presented by Progressive Insurance. And, you know, some people might say that I'm hating on this a little bit because I'm already just throwing up in my mouth a little bit at how much we're going to talk about it. But if you think my takes are hot, 
I don't know. Our good buddy, ESPN College Basketball Analyst Myron Metcalf, brings it even hotter. And Myron joins us now. Myron, I was told that you said that you thought Duke uh, versus St. Peter's would have been a bigger matchup than Duke, North Carolina. Defend yourself, good sir. Wow. I think think it would have been. Definitely. I mean, you have to imagine what St. Peter's would have done to get there. They would have beaten Kentucky, uh, Purdue, and then they would have had to play really, really well to beat North Carolina. So I think they would have gone into that game with a real chance to beat Duke. I think it would be a real David versus Goliath. But the game we're getting on Saturday is going to be one of the top three or four games of all time. Oh, look at oh. him coming around to my In terms side of popularity. Of In terms yeah, of buzz. Uh, yeah, I mean, for completely different reasons, they both would be huge. The anomaly, the, the, the historic nature of if the Peacocks were to advance that far is huge. But in terms of storyline and narrative and history and everything else, we're getting an incredibly somehow likely matchup that has never before happened to meet 500 plus times, a hundred times in the tournament with just coach K or I'm um, not in the tournament, but uh, just since coach coach K has taken over and never have met in the tournament is unbelievable. Do you think it's more of a benefit to Duke or UNC the way things happened the last time they met? I think it's more of a benefit for UNC just because they know they've done it before. And I mean, Duke's playing really, really well right now. Um, and they were playing well before when UNC beat them. Um, and, and I think now there's a little more pressure. I think what happened, and I was with Duke all week in San Francisco, I think they felt less pressure after they lost to North Carolina because everyone had sort of written them off and said, hey, these guys aren't good enough to send Coach K off with a championship in his final season. But now, like, the pressure's back. Now it's like you got to win two games to get that sixth national championship, whereas I think North Carolina is feeling less pressure. I mean, them getting here – and Hubert Davis's first year is already a big achievement. But I think this is going to be an incredible event. Like, I think we're watching the opening scene to Coach K's 30 for 30, one way or the other. That's what like I it's going to start with what happens on Saturday. Wow. But what if they lose the Natty, Myron? Like, let's just pretend they, they beat North Carolina and then they get thumped by Kansas. Still, it's going to start there because this is, again, as Sarah said, this has never happened, which is crazy to think. Like, how many times these teams have been really, really good. They've been mm-hmm. Final Four contenders, and they haven't met. So for them to meet the way they're meeting now in Coach K's last year, and then Hubert Davis coming out of nowhere leading this team to the Final Four, I mean, I honestly think it'll be one of the three or four biggest games in college basketball history. Uh, and even if they go on and lose in the national championship game, let's say they win on Saturday, it's still going to be an incredible moment uh, for the sport. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz on ESPN Radio. We're talking to ESPN college basketball analyst Myron Medcalf. You can follow him at Medcalf by ESPN. Uh, Over the course of this tournament, of the teams remaining, who has most impressed you? Not compared to expectation, but actual just play. Which has played the best? That's a really good question. I think it's Kansas. I mean, you know, like Kansas has not really been getting a lot of credit. It's weird. They're like the one one seed remaining, and I think they've kind of done what they're supposed to do. So there's not, you know, the buzz of Coach K's final year, or North Carolina coming out of nowhere, or Villanova doing this in a year that they didn't even win the Big East. But I think Kansas has had the most dominant stretches. And if you look at start to finish, kind of how good they've been, and if you look at some of the box scores, you go, okay, they've played too many close games. But if you look in the actual – you know, game itself. I mean, they've had some incredible runs. I mean, against Miami, I think they outscored them in the second half, 41-15. to 15. 
I mean, Kansas has just been really, really good. And Remy Martin, the transfer out of Arizona State, he has been very good in the last couple of games. He had an injury during the season, never looked comfortable, but now he's playing strong. It's honestly like they made a trade, like at the NBA trade deadline, and they have a star that they've added to the mix on Remy Martin. So I think Kansas, if you want to say who's playing the best basketball right now, I actually think it's Kansas. How much different would you see the Kansas-Villanova matchup if Justin Moore wasn't out with a torn Achilles? Way different. I mean, you know, Jay Wright has, has been sort of the MacGyver of coaching and been able to find ways to tinker with lineups and to come up with a way to beat the best teams in the country. But you can't really replace your number two score. You know, he can he can kind of move some pieces around, but you lose a guy who's averaging 14.8 points per game who is, you know, a star on that team. It's just hard to really fill in behind them. Now, I think they'll fight, and I think Kansas knows that they're not just going to walk over them. But it's a completely different game uh, without Justin Moore. I mean, this is you know, Sean Butler at West Virginia getting hurt in the Final Four, Kenyon Martin getting hurt in 2000 with Cincinnati, Joel Embiid gets hurt before Kansas in 2014, going into the NCAA tournament. This is going to be remembered as one of those injuries that affected a potential title run. Myron Metcalf was with us here on Spain and Fitz. Uh, we saw St. Peter's run come to an end in sort of unceremonious fashion, but they did give us a good run, and they had us kind of thinking about whether the transfer portal, NIL rights, some of the changes to the game might make it more likely to see deep double-digit teams like this go further in the tournament. Do you see that happening more often? Um, I don't, actually, just because, like, you know, a St. Peter's will happen every now and then, of course. That's always going to be there. Now, I don't know if we'll get another 15th seed to just get to the Elite Eight, but you're always going to have a double-digit seed kind of make a run. But if you look at who's here, Sarah, in New Orleans, it's Duke, it's North Carolina, it's Villanova, it's Kansas. Right. And if I told you back in November that those four teams are going to be in the Final Four, everyone would say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So the Blue Bloods are still here, and they're still going to have the greatest advantage. Like, when we talk about transfer portal, the most winning tradition, you know, the best staff, the best resources, the greatest investment, that's still going to weigh in favor of those schools, and they're going to get the best players in those pools. But I do think that next tier benefits Baylor last year and some of these other schools that might be able to put together so that one-year run. But the Dukes, Kansas, Kentuckys, teams like that, they're still going to be the squads that are consistently in the mix. Three of these four teams, though, Myron, have huge brands at head coach that have been there that have cemented a legacy and that are part of it. Obviously, Coach K is going to walk away. When he's done, how does Duke maintain this level of blue blood status to continue to go to Final Fours? Well, you should look at the recruits that John Shire has already. Right I mean, he's, he's set it up this way so that he's given John Shire time, but he's also, you know, this sort of a year-long introduction. It's a year-long exit for him but a year-long introduction to John Shire's head coach. The question's going to be not this year or next year. What happens three or four years from now? You look at what happened with John Wooden. Is There were three coaches in ten years after he retired, and they all left with this idea of, you know what, they couldn't just live up to expectations. Uh, you look at what happened after Dean Smith uh, retires. Uh, and you have Matt Doherty eventually comes aboard, and it was just too much. So it's going to be interesting to see how John Shire does. But usually in these situations, the first guy struggles a bit before they kind of figure out. But I think John Shire is in a great position to continue the winning success at Duke. 
Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, talking to Myron Metcalf. You can follow him at Metcalf by ESPN. Uh, you got a lead on, on who you think's going to win it all? I know we've got to decide who the matchup will be, but um, I know you mentioned Kansas has been the best. Do they match up the best, too? Yeah, I mean, Kansas is really, really good. I just think Duke is has too much star power. I mean, that, that's the way it feels. And maybe I'm biased because I've been here in San Francisco with them. But I think Paula Bancaro is the best player in New Orleans, and they're playing carefree, and they're going to be hard to stop. Myron, a story for another day, but follow him on Twitter, at Metcalf by ESPN. Did someone else already have Myron Metcalf on Twitter? Can we not take him out, Myron? <laughs> no, I, I think I could have changed it. Like it was like someone I knew back in the day recommended it, and I thought it was a cool idea. It's not as cool. I could make it cool. It should just be Myron Metcalf. I should change it. I mean, I'm just saying, if, if you know, you're a superstar, man. You should just get your own name on Twitter. That's that's what I'm saying. Follow him on Twitter, Metcalf by ESPN. Myron, we always appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for the insight. Uh, thank you. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. With insurance for cars, homes, boats, motorcycles, RVs, and commercial vehicles, all at 1-800-PROGRESSIVE if you use the old-fashioned thing called a phone or Progressive.com. Coming up, did anyone really ask for a Lion's Hard Knocks? Ugh. We'll explain next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Tough blow for UConn in the second quarter of this game with NC State. Uh, they still have a seven-point lead up 27-20, to 20, but their center, Juhas, just went down with a really ugly injury, Fitz. As soon as she fell on the play on a putback shot she started screaming in pain and on the replays it looked like a part of her hand or wrist was um not mm-hmm. in the right place anymore um, mm-hmm. yeah yep. really uh, not something i would recommend looking up if you missed it um but she is uh almost in uh, i can't imagine a situation in which she would be back and really shook up a lot of her teammates it looked like maybe Paige beckers even had a tear or two um that's the kind of injury that can really um upset a team beyond just losing that player so we'll keep you updated on her status status of uhas and also of that team again uconn up about seven points in the second quarter of that one as the last two games deciding the uh, final four for uh, the women the last two games of the elite eight are happening right now it's spain and fed sarah spain jason fitz espn radio ESPN app, Sirius XM channel 80. We got lots more to get to today. Chris Connolly going to take us behind the scenes on all the Oscar stuff last night, post slap, all the parties and everything. Um, Also, we got to get to some talk about the NFL Rooney rule changes and stuff like that. So to get to everything else that happened today and over the weekend, we got to do quickies. Quickies with Spain and Fitz. We get in and out of topics fast. Fitz, U.S. men's national team in a very good position to qualify for the World Cup, but they haven't quite done it yet. They got a tie draw, I should say, on the pitch with Mexico at Azteca, which was a big step forward for them. They had been 0-3-3 in competitive games there, uh, and then they absolutely dominated Panama 5-1 to with a Pulisic hat trick. So they're in a good position, but they busted out a banner that said qualified when, in fact, they have not yet... And they could still completely blow it against Costa Rica. And I don't like that kind of energy and those optics for a team that has historically underperformed. From my understanding, Sarah, if a team just decides to forfeit, it qualifies yes. as a 3 nothing loss. Yes. Now, 
The only way that they don't qualify is if they lose by more than six. This is the perfect, like for all of you that say we're not going to be quitters, this is a perfect time to be a quitter for one game. You just say, you know what? We forfeit, you win, congratulations, and then you sit back, you have a drink, you put your feet up, you get yeah, healthy, so, and you, you hang your band. So a very interesting perspective from someone who didn't want to tie with the Chargers at the end of the season as a Raiders fan. Well, that is probably a fair point uh, to to make, but uh-huh. let's also just let's just admit uh-huh. that I don't want to take any risk that there's somehow we lose to six nothing. I mean, there's just we've been waiting forever. That no, I I think you take you take the sure thing. You take the sure thing here. Like if if you'd have told me that the Raiders forfeiting that game would have given them a sure playoff bet, uh, opportunity. I probably would have taken that. Like I'll take the sure thing. Fair enough. Burden a hand. Burden a hand. Fair I'm the worst enough. investor for that um, reason. I, I think they should play it. Uh, they have not lost by six goals or more since 1975, but or maybe 1979, I think it was. But that being said, don't roll out the banner in advance. Like, karma's going to get you, especially <laughs> if you're the U.S. men's national team. You have a history of failure. Uh, speaking of, let's get to the next story. Quickies. The Lions. History mm. of failure. Uh, <laughs> this is actually kind of exciting. Uh, uh, and it's going to sound like a shot at them, but I don't mean it that way. The Lions are going to be featured in Hard Knocks for training camp. Um, everyone's fired up about the Dan Campbell aspect of it, and that is an interesting part. We have seen this guy give soundbite after soundbite from you know chewing off kneecaps um, to the to the you know I think one of them was about getting a lion to take a poop in the end zone. I mean, he really gives us the kind of content that you and I and the rest of the gas bags at ESPN are looking for. But I'm not as excited about that as I am about the possibility that sending a bunch of cameras into that facility and that environment might somehow reveal to the world and people who can make a difference what the hell is going on with that franchise. Because even though they are division rival, I have genuine and true empathy for the fans and for that team. I spoke at a charity event there uh, a couple years ago, right before COVID, and everyone could not have been kinder and nicer. All of the owners, all of the higher up front office folks were there for the event, and I got to spend time with them, and it made me sad, Fitz. And I want a camera to pick up whatever it is. Do they have a black cat walking under a ladder on the 13th of every month? Like, what is happening in Detroit, (laughs) and can we fix it? I, I have played many a show in my country music years in the great city of Detroit. The people are spectacular. You are right. Now that I've said that, let's be clear. Like, the whole concept of people will watch anything the NFL puts out, they are testing that theory with this. Like, because I don't think anybody outside of Detroit is going to care about what the Lions are doing on hard knocks, no matter how much. Like, this is one of those you just can't put, you can put a bow tie on a pig and it's still a pig. That is going to be the Lions in this situation. And there is zero chance. Like, I'd rather watch a preseason game between two teams than watch anything that the Lions are going to give me on hard knocks just let it die already just go away until we get a a team that somebody actually cares about okay i will admit that hard knocks has lost a little luster of late i did at one point during spain and company have a segment where i would just read my favorite worst line of the show that week because the Mm. writing is so god awful and cliche and i genuinely feel like liev schreiber is too good to be subjected to the puns and cliche BS that they put him uh, through as the narrator on the show. That being said, I still watch every season. 
And I still find them behind the scenes fascinating. And if you remember when the Browns, another team known for their historic futility, was covered, one of the very early episodes gave us a little look at the dysfunction behind the scenes between Hugh Jackson and his coaching staff and some very real fights and headbutts. And I think that that sort of gave us a, a precursor to what was to come. I'm genuinely curious if other teams or fans or anyone will be able to watch this and be like, Oh, so that's why they suck. Yeah, Should we the call them? Should we call them and tell them we figured it out? The only people that are going to watch this are the people that, like, when it scrolls automatically and says, oh, we think you're going to like this and just puts it on for you next, that's the only way anybody's watching the lines. <laughs> uh, no the offense, good news Detroit, is more Jared you. Goff, and uh, yeah. what a dazzling Oh, yeah, that's going to be a star. Delight. It's going to be It's going to be. By the way, speaking of Detroit, quickly, they got the 2024 NFL draft, so yet another. Yeah. Yay. Spain I'm defense, Debbie Spain, Jason Fitz, you are a hater of all things. <laughs> what about, hey, listen, Detroit, Motown, you could definitely oh, find yourself that. sent there to do some really cool crossover pieces. Uh, now we're talking, uh, you know, we're, we're, I'm all Including in for that. Free Never stuff. mind. I'm Swag, in. Fitz. I'm in. Oh, Swag. Focus now, on what's important. If I could just hang out with the legends of Motown, like, or just be in the room, like, one of the coolest <laughs> experiences of my life Robinson. was being in Abbey, like, going in and playing a song in Abbey Road is like, it just hits different because you you're in a studio. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the, amazing. Like, to do that in a Motown studio would be, that'd be fire. Yeah. Speaking that, of that, Motown, if you have not seen the Smokey Robinson cameo where he has mispronounced his Hanukkah, course. Mm-hmm. please, please look it up. <laughs> All right, next story. Quickies. Albert Pujols is returning to the Cardinals. <laughs> now, Fitz, just last week we were asking for unlikely or surprising reunions after seeing Malcolm Butler go back to the Patriots. I don't know if it's unlikely seeing as there wasn't a massive fallout, but I did not think anyone would give Albert Pujols money to quote-unquote play baseball anymore. Uh, and and at 42... He is signing a one-year deal. I don't have the money on it, so maybe it is more of a symbolic thing. He'll, you know, pop in and DH every once in a while. Um, but obviously, won two titles with the Cardinals. Um, I'm sure if you search "trader" spelled T-R-A-D-E-R and Pujols, you will get a lengthy hundreds, thousands of social media comments from Cardinals fans who can't spell, and they're going to start deleting them because their boy is coming back. He's getting $2.5 million is what they're telling me. But the best part about it is he said on Monday, quote, this is it for me. This is my last run. I just want one reporter in the room that's an actual professional because I'm not to say, Albert, you promise? Like, that's all. That's that's where I am on this. Like, Listen, okay. we can't do that to people in sports. We know that they promise a lot, and that doesn't mean anything because it's hard to give up that thing you've been doing your whole life. Uh, oh, amen. But sometimes it gives up on you. And I'm telling you, at 42 years old, I think this is going to be the last run. I can can only hope. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Coming out, what was the immediate fallout from the Will Smith-Chris Rock altercation? What happened in the theater? What happened at the parties afterward? Also, Will Smith has released a statement. So has Chris Rock. We'll get to all of it with our next guest. Who was there next? Spain and Fitz, the podcast. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN App, Sirius XM Channel 80. We, uh, we've got UConn up a bit at the half. We'll keep you updated on that. And then we got number three, Michigan, number one, Louisville at nine Eastern on ESPN as the women's elite eight closed out. Again, we'll keep you updated on that. But we got to talk about last night's Oscar ceremony. We touched on it earlier 
a lot of moving moments, a lot of new modern moments that uh, looked very different than previous ceremonies. And of course, the shocking moment where Chris Rock made a joke, Will Smith went on stage, slapped him, screamed some obscenities, and then won an award and cried a lot. Uh, we're going to get some insight from someone who was in the building, first on the red carpet, then at all the after parties with all of the inside scoop. It's ESPN and ABC News correspondent, the great Chris Connolly. Chris, thanks for the time. Thanks for thanks for having me. I, I, I hardly know what to attribute this wonderful honor to, but it's well, great to get to talk to you. First of all, you know I love following your work. I've loved having you on the podcast. And uh, Fitz, if you remember, Chris wrote an impeccable parody Christmas song that we sung live on the air uh, yep. several years ago. Um, so he is a man of many talents. Uh, Chris, I'll tell you at home, I, 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 I didn't know what to do with myself in this moment. At first, I thought the beginning was fake because the sound of the mic slap sounded like it was almost put in by like a, a sound department. And it didn't look like Chris Rock fell or, or really touched his face. And then I thought it went from there. And then I realized once we saw all the uncensored versions from other countries that all of it was very real. What did you make of it and where were you when this went down? I also was at home, as you as you correctly say. I was on the red carpet, uh, you know, for the five hours leading up to the show, <laughs> and then once the show began, uh, I was home and watching it and drinking diet root beer like everybody else. And I thought maybe my my Directv had been hit by lightning or something, which is unusual in California because there was all that kind of like back and forth. You know, we know from. Uh, the Janet Jackson Super Bowl, that sensors have two buttons, I think, in the truck, right? They have a sound button and they have a visual button. And it seemed like everybody was mashing the buttons at the same time uh, <laughs> as we tried to figure out what was going on. And then, like you, I, I looked at some other versions and what seemed to have happened emerged. Let's start with the most important part here. What's the favorite kind of diet root beer? Because I, I, I love me some root beer, Chris. So, like, where are we going with this one? This has been a tough challenge during the pandemic for me because I was kind of a, you know, a Barks diet root beer guy, pretty much mm -hmm. straightforward. And then uh, the access was uh, severely limited and I moved over to A&W. And now it's kind of wow. a war in my mind. As, to, as I'm in a throuple when it, it involves <laughs> diet root beer right now. I think you, you speak Would you call the it more of, of an entanglement? Because I think that's more appropriate. I, I, you know, well, it, I, I get a warm welcome from both uh, from both beverages, so that's a good thing. Look, I, 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 you speak the truth of most diet root beer fanatics like myself, and I will say this, uh, you know, split them 50-50. Go 50-50 each in the glass, and uh, you'll be quite happy. I'm just saying uh, I'm offering up a compromise here. Uh, so I'm, you obviously— I'm thumbs up, yeah. <laughs> you got to, to get some of the reaction from afterwards. Uh, I mean, what was the general consensus from the people that were there after the incident happened? Oh, I truly don't know. I mean, I was literally on the on the sofa like you were kind of watching it in sort of amazement. And, and it made me, you know, I, you know, it, it's hard to be a mind reader in these sort of circumstances, but it made me think back to like all the award shows I've covered in the in the past. I mean, certainly on occasion, there's been some dust ups, you know, in the in the wings, I guess, maybe at a couple of MTV VMAs I went to, you know. And then, I, you know, you're just trying to wonder sort of what, like, you guys have been to award shows, right? Like, each of yeah. you has been to an award show. Fitz has performed and, and, in many. And, and, and yeah, and, and you kind of understand, I think, how people feel as they go to award shows, performers. People kind of get amped up. I mean, out here, the Oscars are sort of like Hollywood's prom, right? And so when you talk to people as they go in, that's part of the charm of it, is that these poised, you know, uh, glamorous people are feeling the kind of emotions that we all feel 
when we're going to a prom or we're going to something we're a little anxious about. And I've always thought that was charming. And after last night, you sort of wondered, is there another aspect of that? Is there a way sometimes that people, when they are under those sort of things, get amped up somehow? And right. if, if, uh, if that sometimes results in outsized behavior just because of the excitement of the moment that's that's the kind of thing that was running through my mind after what happened. totally true and i think that happens with a lot of other things i pointed out last night with mila kunis keeping her composure because i know having been under lights and cameras talking about like a sudden passing of an athlete or something the tears come faster the emotions feel bigger because of this spotlight on you even if you're sometimes to a surprise extent and i feel like that happens with excitement and nerves and everything else as well unfortunately for will smith he goes on to win his first oscar and the speech is is rambling and emotional and strange um he's made a statement he he says violence in all of its forms is poisonous and destructive and talks about how his behavior was unacceptable apologize to chris apologize to the academy a lot of people are pointing out that the academy statement last night you know condemns violence there's a lot of people I thought misguided in alleging hypocrisy as they point out films that the Academy has honored. I mean, if you don't understand the difference between honoring a film that shows violence versus perpetrating it on stage, uh, 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 it's a, a little bit weird for me. Uh, but did you think that the Academy handled itself well in response to it, both in the moment and then after the fact? You know, they, they, they closed down restaurants like Soup Plantation, right, after the pandemic, because we all couldn't be next to each other, like at a salad bar or something. Right. Um, but this has truly been like the Soup Plantation of hot takes the last 24 hours. <laughs> yes. Like you could, yes. you know, if you, you want the iceberg lettuce, if you, you want the anything. Chopped, it's an uh, endless buffet. Yeah. Yeah, you, yeah, and you can put whatever on, anything on your plate you want. You know, you want the blue cheese dressing, you want the ranch dressing. It's all there. And so... They've been all served in abundance, and they'll get more if you want. And so I've, I've seen, I've seen, if not fully explored, just a just a sampling of of some of the hot takes. I will stake out the highly controversial position that it is a bad idea to punch somebody or to slap somebody on stage during an award show. Mm-hmm. Um, and furthermore, if an apology is genuine and from the heart, in general, I think it's a good idea to strongly consider accepting it. And that, I guess, is where we stand right now. But do you I think guess, that the Academy should have done something in the moment? Were you okay with I, I, I think it was going to, I, 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 uh, I think the sense of, of unreality and shock that we all felt m- must have been universal. I think mm-hmm. I, if you, you could not more have imagined a less likely circumstance with the possible exception of Ariana DeBose not winning last night. <laughs> I, I, and I keep thinking about t- to that end. I mean, we we when I was one of the first award shows I played with the band Perry, we dropped confetti down, and uh, we didn't really think that out. Like we dropped confetti on the first song, and it went all over the crowd, and all of all of the people, the performers that were there, were were standing. They were they were sitting there covered in confetti suddenly, in their hair and their boots, and all over their ten thousand dollar gowns, and uh, it really angered some of our peers at the time. And what what I just keep thinking about in that moment is I can't imagine. One like if Eric Church is mad, that's fine. He can say something backstage, but I can't imagine a world where Eric Church then just walks up on stage and slaps me in the face for it. Like it just seems stunning to me, Chris, that that the, they did nothing, even even after it took a second to react, that they still did nothing. Surprises me. I I I, I mean, certainly the the thing that that resonates for a lot of people is you can imagine the number of uh, the ways in which. Uh, any objection to content that happened on stage uh, could have been expressed in other ways. You know, people were going to have access to a lot of microphones. There's going to be a lot of chances to get in front and say things if you felt that way. And that, I think, 
I think that's what made what happened so kind of uh, so kind of shocking. It's it's not like um, it's not like there were there weren't going to be ways to to uh, raise objections to yeah. what had happened, and yeah. so as a result, it, you know, we got this instead. Agreed. Chris Rock got a chin. And on I, the I nose, speak man. as someone who was once spat at, by the way, oh. on the red carpet at the Oscars. Oh. So I have some expertise in this. Who was the? Did spitter? you keep going? I, I, of course, I kept going. Um, it was Quentin Tarantino. He was under oh. the mistaken impression that I had been the editor in chief of a magazine that had published a story about his biological father. Oh, wow. I wasn't at the time. I'd left. Um, uh, you know, mistaken identity. Um, but he uh, he spat at me. And he missed. Oh, so thank goodness. That, I was going to ask you know, about the so, end. Yeah. Hey, so, you uh, know, so, it, it, it happened. So after, I guess. afterwards, I remember hearing, you know, well, you know, once he finds out you weren't the editor of the magazine at the time, I'm sure he'll apologize. And <laughs> I'm like, you know, when you get spat at, you don't need a reason to get an apology. Just going right. to say. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I imagine you're probably still waiting. Uh, Chris Connolly, ESPN and ABC News correspondent. You can follow him at Chris Connolly. Um, also, we have seen clips going around of Will Smith slapping someone on the red carpet as well a couple years ago um, after an awkward sort of embrace or something. So I guess not the first time. Hey, before we let you go, I want to ask you quickly, uh, very quickly, because we're out of time here. Um, did you like the changes and the and the things that they tried to do to make it younger and faster? I had a lot of enjoyment in, in what they did. I love the Beyonce thing. I, I thought the, I thought the host did a wonderful job. You know, I uh, you know I I, I love the bit about uh, Kim Kardashian and Dame Judi Dench. That I thought was terrific. Right. So I like the idea of revving up and making it super entertaining. You never know what's going to happen when that happens. But That's true. you know, there were a lot of wins <laughs> last night for the way they looked at it. I agree, and I, I think some of those awards being done where they tell the person they've won and walk them up during the package did save just the time of watching someone walk up, and I was fine with that. Um, I thought they made some good changes and some weird ones. Thanks for the time, Chris. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it, Chris. Pleasure talking to you both. Thank you. Lots more great stories from Chris on my podcast. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Google it. You could find when he was on talking about all sorts of good stuff, including the old MTV news days. ESPN Radio is presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you could save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Coming up, will the changes to the Rooney Rule announced today help make real change going forward? It's next. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. Anytime owners get together in a city to have their annual meeting. The question is, what are they going to get done? And one question we ask every single year is, what is the NFL going to do to fix the Rooney Rule? Well, today we got some very specific answers of what the NFL intends to do to continue to evolve the hiring process and hopefully improve it. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel Lady Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, were presented by Progressive Insurance. We'll get to that Rooney Rule discussion in just a second, but it wasn't the only thing that happened that was interesting today. Uh, as we also heard from Mike Tomlin, anytime we have a, a Rooney Rule conversation this year, I think there's some real conversations to be had about Brian Flores, the, uh, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, who says that he was offered a financial incentive to lose football games. And uh, he found himself uh, in a lawsuit. He has found himself in a lawsuit against the league, Sarah. But also, there was a period where we wondered if he would have employment. And he got that employment mm -hmm. with the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is significant because all eyes are on Mike Tomlin, who has such a huge profile within the league. He used that profile to say this today at the NFL meetings about his decision to hire Coach Flores. He and I had been in continual conversations since his legal action started. I wanted to support him, you know, as a member of the uh, football coaching fraternity. 
and um, and really just informal discussions and really the discussion itself was kind of born out of those out of those visits and it really moved rather quickly to be quite honest with you um, and that we didn't breach the subject until all the head jobs were filled I mean Sarah that's a huge level of advocacy from Tomlin yeah I think what's tough about this is that we won't see what could have played out and what I think likely would have played out if he were not to have been named to the Steelers staff. I think it is very likely that Flores could have gone the way of Kaepernick, where he is blackballed from franchises, where he is slowly and methodically drained of resources in a prolonged fight with the teams uh, that he's suing and the NFL, and where his name and his reputation are slandered uh, in the same way we saw Kaepernick in his willingness to speak up for systemic and, and institutional racism. Because he is now on a staff and will continue to work, even at a position that maybe is beneath the talent that he has and the opportunities he should have gotten, that's real hard to do, Fitz. I mean, that level of advocacy essentially saves him from being martyred and, as Tomlin put it, on an island uh, and... It could make a serious difference in how the the next uh, proceedings go in terms of how the, the the league has to treat him as part of the Steelers instead of as an independent party. Well, and it speaks to the confidence Tomlin has in his position and his voice and his power yeah. to come in and say, like, I don't I don't really care what any anybody else thinks or wants. This is what I'm going to do because it's the right thing to do for the human being. I mean, it, it it and says, the Steelers allowing him to uh, because yeah. of that that agency that he has now. Well, and, and that's the reminder, and I know, you know, we always talk about the Rooney rule as part of the NFL culture, and, you know, the Rooneys and the Steelers organization have been on the right side of this for a very long time, but the Rooney rule doesn't always seem to work. And so Monday, the NFL reaffirmed its commitment to the Rooney rule as a central part of its plan, but they've modified it. So uh, they're trying to increase the number of minority candidates interviewed for co- coaching and front office positions. So the league announced two enhancements to the rule. First, women are now included in all coaching and front office interview requirements. This is not a either or they are part of the fulfillment of the Rooney rule. So uh, interviewing a woman uh, as a candidate would fulfill one of those obligations. But teams will not be forced to interview interview a woman for the vacancies. But if they do, it would count towards fulfilling the requirement. Uh, second, only interviews conducted in person will count towards the Rooney rule requirement. So Zoom interviews won't, uh, won't count. That was all approved. That's interesting, but even more interesting now, Sarah, is that every team in the NFL will have to add a coach to their staff that will be on the offensive staff as an assistant coach that is a minority coach, and that will be funded in part by the league. But all 32 teams will hire a minority of his, uh, offensive assistant coach for the 2022 season. That is uh, mandatory. That is not optional. It is mandatory, and it has to be done by every, every club. Yeah, and to your point earlier, that coach, that minority offensive assistant coach can be female or a member of an ethnic or racial minority. And this is both exciting and fraught. Um, I have been super supportive of Sam Rappaport, and I have been super invested in the ways that she's created a pipeline using the NFL careers, uh, Women Careers in Football Forum uh, to have a lot more women on the staffs of NFL teams. And I think that's the way to do it. I will argue that uh, this is going to create some of the most uncomfortable conversations because I've been a part of them before on the internet, 
where people argue that women are taking away the jobs of black men. I think the point is that everybody should be in the mix and you give yourself the best chance to have the very best staff when you consider all people from every race, ethnicity, religion, background, gender, etc. And there are already people online fits arguing that women who haven't played aren't deserving in the same way that people argue uh, poorly, I think, for um, why there are such low numbers of, of black and, 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 and coaches of color. Um, I just I, I do not look forward to that part of this. And I don't know for sure that it helps because mandates are very difficult um, in terms of uh, of changing the ingrained mindsets that lead to the sort of issues that the NFL has. I will say at least it does get someone in the building and you're a lot more likely to make a move up if at least they see you working every day. But there is a weirdness to me of forcing every club to add a person under this Rooney rule uh, on the on the staff that's funded in part by the league because then you've got this this unusual circumstance in every single locker room where the world's going to know that that's the coach that was brought in because he had to be brought in. Like that just feels like such a strange dynamic yeah. to add uh, that that could lead to a tremendous amount of disrespect. Also, just looking around the room of saying, "Okay, well, you're only here because you have to be." Like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what message that sends. Like that, that's really we've talked about that before. Me. We've talked about that before, Fitz, and how difficult that is. And I completely agree with that. Um, I don't know if it makes any difference that if it's an offensive assistant coach and it's through this rule, it'll likely be a lower level. So there are going to be less conflict in terms of you're only here because of that. I think it will still exist, but not at the same level as if it's someone like a head coach or, or you know, a, a, a coordinator. It, it's going to be interesting, too, because the league also stressed their, their focus on better representation and ownership. And we all need to remember that the Broncos are sitting right there. So we'll see what happens next. The question is, Duke, North Carolina, we'll get back to college basketball. Are we overhyping the matchup? We'll ask our next guest, who's family with Coach K, Spain and Fitz. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. There's two teams that are going to play this weekend in the final four, I don't, oh, who is it? Who, oh, yeah, North Carolina Duke. Oh, Spain yeah, and Fitz yeah, on ESPN yeah. Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. We're presented by Progressive Insurance, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Spain and Fitz is brought to you by My Computer Career, training for a better life. It's the beginning of a week where everything's going to be massively overhyped from one particular matchup, so why not join in on that fun? We're joined now by ESPN College Basketball analyst Chris Patola. Chris, Thanks for the time. You were a Duke assistant coach from 07 to 12. So we are going to talk about Duke, North Carolina all week. But what does it mean for Duke people to be facing North Carolina in the Final Four? Yeah, you know, I, it, it's, um, it's incredible. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if people fully understand the context. Um, you know, first of all, I, I still live in this area. I've lived in this area for about 20 years. I live in Hillsborough, North Carolina, which is right near – Durham and Chapel Hill, and, and this fits. This has always been the question. You know, they almost got it in 1991 uh, when Duke uh, beat UNLV, and, and Carolina was on the other side of the Final Four and ended up losing to Kansas. So you almost got it in the national championship game, but didn't. And this has always been the question in this area: like, what if, what if Duke and Carolina met in in the Final Four or in the tournament? You know, forget the Final Four. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a big deal in this area. And I just think, you know, it's incredible. Like they play that game in Cameron, uh, you know, about a month or so ago. And obviously Carolina wins that game. And, 
you know, to, for them to, to actually meet again in a year where it's Hubert Davis's first season, it's Coach K's final season, and for these teams to be meeting for the first time in the tournament, uh, given all of that context, uh, look, this, is, this rivalry is incredibly important for the sport of college basketball. Uh, it's, this rivalry is incredibly important, obviously, to the Atlantic Coast Conference. Um, so, and it's incredibly important for a sport that has, I think, lost a little traction nationally. You know, ratings mm-hmm. aren't quite what they, what they used to be, and it's a sport that I think needed a bump. And so to get this game in this event, in that Final Four, uh, I think is pretty remarkable. Chris, you were on the staff at Duke for a number of years. Coach K is your father-in-law. I want to get to more of the rivalry, but I've been hearing people say if Duke manages to get to the national championship and win it, there's a chance that he might pull a Tom Brady. You're as close to Coach K as I'm going to get. What are the odds that he rides this to a championship and then says, ah, maybe I'll come back? I'm, I'd have to be a lot closer than I actually am to give you a, a yes on that, that he would do that. I, Sarah, I... You know, I would be curious, um, and I still think he would do, you know, this year, this, we'll call it a farewell tour, um, which is what it is. You know, I think he would still do this, but I, I think he would think a little bit harder and longer about it um, because mm. it, it has put, I think, more pressure on his players right. and team than I think he, he thought was going to happen. And, you know, there, there are – I kind of knew that this was going to take place, but I think he was a little bit clouded because he wanted to do it the way he wanted to do it. And he's earned that right. Uh, so I think that's the only thing I think, Sarah, that he might, might think about. But I, I don't think at this point he would ever even think of coming back. And I honestly, I think that was more of a question after they lost in Cameron. Like, do you really want to go out to, to, to Carolina? Do you really want to go out that way? But the fact that they, they've gone to a Final Four – you, you you might have an even you might even have that question if they were to lose to Carolina in the final four. So they lose his final game in Cameron in his final game of his career. But if they were to end up to winning the whole thing, I, I don't think there's any chance. But even even that, even if they lose to Carolina or even lose in the national championship, I don't think there's any chance he comes back. Uh, Chris, stick with that final game at Cameron though, because there's two ways we could take this. It's either North Carolina didn't care. They were able to handle the moment, beat the snot out of them, and they'll be fine just again. Or they poke, they poke the belly of the beast, and now Duke comes in with even more fire and focus. How does that game at Cameron impact this game in the Final Four? Well, I think that game impacted both teams in helping them get to the Final Four. Like, I think Duke losing that game changed their season. I think Carolina winning that game indicated two things. First of all, they were playing really well at the time. Like, you don't go in and win that game. I don't care how much pressure was on Duke or how, you know, anybody wants to couch that. You do not go into Cameron that night and win that game if you're not good. And I think both teams have used that night to sort of change their frame of mind and their mindset. Understand, both teams are really talented. But as you guys know, like, you become good when there's this coalescing of talent and mindset. And I think both teams needed a reworking of the mind. Uh, and so that's what we've seen. Like, I think both these teams, I think Duke has played the best in this tournament collectively over their four games. And I think Carolina's right there. I think these are the two most talented teams in this final four. Um, so, I, and I think, again, I think it changed. There was a lot of 
with both of these teams this year, a question of want to, a question of toughness, a question of heart. And I think as, as that year, as the year went on, and then ultimately that game, and I, and also the loss by both teams to Virginia Tech in the ACC tournament, mm-hmm. I think both of those games changed both teams' years and seasons. And I think they are in this Final Four as a product of that night in Cameron and, and in losing uh, a product of losing in the ACC tournament. Spain and Fitz here. Spain, Jason Fitz talking to Chris Patola about Duke UNC. Unbelievable to have met over 500 times, not once in the tournament for this to be the 100th meeting all time when Coach K is coaching Duke uh, against UNC. And and finally here with with as much on the line as there is. I wonder what you make of that meeting at the end of, of Coach K's tenure at Cameron. Uh, is there a boost for UNC knowing that that's what they did the last time they met, or is it a boost for Duke because they've got fire in their eyes and, and, and ice in their veins looking to avenge the way that that went down? I think, Sarah, I think this moment, the fact that it's in the Final Four, I think brings an inherent pressure and an inherent, uh, uh, an inherent limelight that I'm not trying to discount the impact of that game in Cameron, but I think there are a lot more external factors at play. Now, that said, I do think, first of all, Duke is a very different team. Like, Duke, I cannot stress this enough, Duke is significantly better today than they were that game Mm -hmm. in Cameron in a number of different ways that we don't necessarily need to get into. Um, so I think that ultimately is, is, gonna, is really at play here, like who Duke is as a team, but also the psychological impact. I mean, there's, there's no question that knowing Coach K and that staff and having you know, been on that staff for five years, there's no question that they are running tape on that. There's no question they are running highlights from that. There is no question they are using that game to motivate their team. On the other side of that, like Carolina put it to them. And, and if I'm Hubert Davis, I'm doing the same thing. I'm saying, look, you know, we are a different team than that night in Cameron. We are much better. And they had a problem with us. Like, we were a problem for them. So I think there are things to draw on. But I think the fact, by the way, how the, each team handles this week, both locally. I mean, I, you know, I told you how on fire this area is right now. And then ultimately, when they get on site in New Orleans, um, this game is going to take up a lot more oxygen, obviously, than the Villanova-Kansas game. And I think how each coach and how each team handles this week in the lead-up to, uh, to that game I think becomes a, a storyline in and of itself. I know it's early in the week, Chris, but before we let you go, you have plenty of days to change your mind. But first, gut instinct, how's this game play out? You know, I, I, look, I think Duke's playing the best right now. Um, but I, it's – it is hard to say exactly how this one plays out relative. Like, part of me is, is I want to go back and watch the, the two games. The first game really is, I don't think, going to be that edifying. I think the second one will be interesting just in terms of the second half and what Carolina did. My instinct right now, and, and based on the way they're playing, says Duke. Um, but this Carolina team, you know, the diversity in the, that group, I mean, they've had two different guys score 30 in this tournament and by the way uh which were Caleb Love and RJ Davis and by the way Brady Manick would have gone for 40 in the Baylor game if he wasn't thrown out Hmm. so I think you know my my instinct says Duke right now but my instinct also says I'm probably going to end up changing that by the end of the week
Oh, that's the glory of it. Every day somebody will ask you. Follow him on Twitter at Chris underscore Spatola. Chris, always appreciate your time, your insight, my friend. Thank you so much. Enjoy the wild week of hype. We appreciate you starting it here. Yeah, you got it, guys. My pleasure. Thank you. I still don't know why I have consumed so much haterade today, but I am, uh, I, you know, I'm not my usual, my usual uh, beacon of light self. That being said, since I have spent the last couple of hours, uh, you know, you know, whating all over Duke, North Carolina, we asked you what's the most hyped-up team or matchup or player you have absolutely no interest in. We'll get the answers that you've given us next. Spain and Fitz on ESPN Radio. Spain and Fitz, the podcast. I think this game's going to end before our show does because of the way the end of games plays out. Replays, timeouts, free throws, fouls, etc. But right now, NC State is up 54-53 on UConn with Mm. 519 to play. This is going to go down to the wire. Again, it's a two-seed in UConn that struggled a lot of the season simply because of injury. Paige Becker's out, AZ Fudd out. you got an NC State one-seed that has been pretty dominant and looked great, but had to go into UConn's backyard of Bridgeport, Connecticut for this Elite Eight matchup. Uh, This is the first of two games tonight. We got Louisville-Michigan later, and for a young UConn team, it's impressive that they're here, but I think we all know, Fitz, that they want more than just showing up. Um, And, uh, man, Geno's face on the sidelines, and especially after losing their center um, early in the game to injury. uh, This is going to be tough. And, and you mentioned, you know, for a young UConn team, I feel like either side of this game gives you a holy cow moment because UConn has suffered from so many injuries. And I understand that Brandy UConn is powerful, but for these individual women on the floor, like having to go through this this year has been particularly difficult and they've been a shell of themselves for a lot of the year compared to what we thought they could be because of injury. Conversely, if NC State pulls this thing out, at UConn, essentially, you know, uh, that to me, I look at that and say, my God, if you were able to, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, topple this <laughs> brand like that, that has to have some sort of lasting meaning and impact for the rest of the run. So the winner of this is uh, just tip of the hat either way in a game that's turned out to be everything we thought it would be from the bill. Well, and to your point, NC State has had no issue in hostile territory they're nine and one in away games this season six and oh on neutral courts so this is a team that can show up in other people's uh courts and get it done uh they beat two number one teams on the road last year the first team ever to do that in the same season so they have some experience here uh but they have to stop the runs from uconn down the stretch here um and they have to be smart about taking care of the ball we'll keep an eye on that nc state at 57 55 on uconn with 412 to play a trip to the Final Four on the line here. Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz, ESPN Radio, ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80. Uh, we talked earlier about the Duke-UNC game, and Fitz is already over it. Uh, it's day one of this week, uh, day one of the reactions. Fitz already over it, but this is an unbelievable matchup. Two teams that have played so many times without ever meeting in the tournament. 257 meetings since 1920. And yet they have never faced off in the NCAA tournament. It will be the 100th game between NC and Duke since Coach K was hired in 1980. And the record is 50 wins for Duke, 49 for North Carolina. 
Uh, just uh, unbelievable storylines heading into this based on the way things ended at Cameron Indoor in that last meeting of the regular season. Of course, what we've seen from the teams throughout. And one of the interesting things for me, Fitz, uh, as we look at this, and we were going to play sound earlier and we didn't, but uh, I could sum it up, essentially. Uh, we've got Hubert Davis, who's the first-year coach for UNC, but obviously a storied coach in his own right, talking about how excited he is for his guys just to get out there and see the crowd of fans, to see the posters of themselves hanging everywhere at the Final Four. Like, he is very excited for them to just be a part of this. And it reminded me that... Oh, let's hear that. And see how big <laughs> that place is. I can't wait for them to see the hotel with their pictures all over the place. I can't wait to have that practice on Saturday and have that feeling only four teams are practicing that day. And I can't wait till they run out of that tunnel and it's 80,000 watching them play. Like I know what they're going to see and experience. And I think we're scheduled to leave on Wednesday. I like to leave tonight. <laughs> I want to get there tonight. And Fitz, what that had me thinking is as storied as these teams are, as these histories of these schools, UNC does not have a lot of tournament experience, and Duke has a total of 24 minutes of NCAA tournament experience. That's Joey Baker, Bates Jones at Davidson, and Theo John at Marquette, plus Paolo Banchero's experience as a ball boy and floor mopper for Gonzaga, Iowa in 2015. I don't think they added that to the minutes, but we're still counting it. 24 minutes. This is the youngest, least experienced team that Coach K has had since 1985. So for all of the stories, you've still got players that are making incredible runs and who are probably going to be a bit mystified and amazed when they just walk into the building for the Final Four. Well, and that's what's interesting when you have a bunch of players that may not have that level of experience on teams and, and programs that are all about experience. So this is sort of uh, that, that interesting moment that you're also reminded of what modern college basketball is because the chance to have a bunch of you know fifth-year seniors sitting around that can provide some expertise on what this moment is like is virtually gone for most of it. So it becomes interesting because we think of the Blue Blood conversation, but that has nothing to do with these kids that are actually playing in this game. And that's the wild part to me. And part of the reason that at, in some ways it feels – Overhyped to me, I think part of the reason is because I'm so used to Duke, North Carolina, meaning I'm watching 10 guys that we're about to see in the NBA, like these huge names mm -hmm. that you know are about to take over a whole, whole generation. And I just don't know that that's even possible to know as much as we all think that Ben Carroll could turn out to be this great player. And there's so much potential for these guys. We don't we're not walking into this saying, oh, OK, well, this is you know, we got Bobby Hurley on this. We're not walk, walking. This isn't Jay Will. You know, we're not looking at Stackhouse in this. Like, it's just a much different star power matchup. The star power has to come from other places. And that comes from the brand, not the players. Yeah. Agreed. It comes from the brand. It comes from the coaches, and and in a weird way, Hubert Davis, despite being a first year, still brings a, a great reputation. Um, oh yeah, you've for got sure. you you've got all of the Coach K stuff. You've got all of the history between the two teams. Um, you've got you know Paolo Banchero. That's a guy that there's big expectations for. It's just not as much. I don't think there's any player across NCAA men's basketball this year that ever stepped up into superstar status. And if you look at social media and NIL, that bears out. The most popular players, the most talked about and mentioned and at highest paid are people like Paige Beckers on the women's side, Aaliyah Boston on the women's side, right? Uh, Caitlin Clark on the women's side. There just haven't been quite 
those men's players that have stood out like in past years with someone like Zion Williamson. Yeah, you're right. There isn't a Zion or even like a Trey Young. Like we haven't had a John Morant that everybody's mm-hmm. falling in love with. Like it's very different this year. And I think a lot of people thought Ben Carroll would end up being that person. It just hasn't turned out necessarily. You know, I go back to what Jay Will said a few weeks ago when he was talking about the fact that you know, Duke at the time when they lost to North Carolina in the last home game at Cameron, he said, you know, Duke lacked lacked some level of identity and who's the guy that gets the ball. We all expected to be Bancaro, but it hadn't really happened. That's changed over the last few games. But the one interesting thing to me about the NCAA tournament, Sarah, is that we look at it as a long block of time. So we say, well, over the last couple of weeks, Mm -hmm. but it's really only a few games. So like there isn't some massive pattern I can take out of a few games that makes me feel really confident about either team in a Final Four matchup because we just don't know how these kids will handle this moment. I mostly agree with you, but I will tell you, what we've seen over the tournament with this Duke team has changed my impression a ton. That MSU game where they could very easily have folded under the pressure, the fact that every game they play, they've had to consider this could be Coach K's last and it could be on us. I've just been incredibly... I mean, the same for UNC. They almost didn't make the tournament this unexpected run. But um, Duke, across the board, five players in double digits of every single game, 35% from three, 50% from the floor, 75% from free throw every single game. That's the first team ever to do that. They've just, in in terms of a unified effort and execution, it's been incredible. It's Spain and Fitz, Sarah Spain, Jason Fitz. Don't forget, the NBA is on ESPN Radio. Tune in to tomorrow night as the Mavs host the Lakers, presented by Indeed. Coverage begins at 7 p.m. Eastern on most ESPN Radio stations. Um, Fitz, unfortunately for you, Duke UNC is not tomorrow. Oh, God, I wish it was. Then yeah. we could at least get, we get no, to have I, a few more days of this. But the craziest thing is, I will say this. Right now, you could make a compelling argument that, that North Carolina kicked their butt, so it's fine. You can make a compelling argument that all they did was anger Duke. Thanks for listening to the Spain and Fitz podcast. You can listen to the show weeknights at 7 Eastern on ESPN Radio and on the ESPN app.